You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups. Our guests share their sometimes never-before-told mistakes, rejections, wrong turns in the more difficult seasons of their lives and careers. But they also share with us how they moved on and up and through to keep creating and inspiring others to build lives of purpose, passion, and impact. I'm your lucky and plucky host, Liz Bohannon. Ooh, pluckies. I am excited about today. You know by now that we do not shy away from hard and complex topics on this show. Because the only way that we grow and evolve is through going afraid and wading into complexity and nuance and sometimes some discomfort. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that we've had quite a few anti-racism activists and educators on the show. And I have to say that after every episode, I find myself thinking about these things, about racism, about the ways in which I am a part of the problem hopefully about how I can be part of the solutions, I find myself thinking about them differently because every person that we've hosted, of course, has had their own unique voice and perspective and way that they go about and invite us into creating change. That being said, I could not be more thrilled to have Faith Brooks on the show today. I met Faith originally through Be The Bridge, which is a community organization that helps bring people together to have hard conversations and to work towards racial reconciliation. Faith is a social worker, an activist, and the co-host of the Melanated Faith podcast. Okay, I don't want to give too much away. I'm just going to urge you to listen with curiosity and openness and maybe some vulnerability. I will say that faith encourages us to forgive ourselves for what we didn't know, but also to be accountable for what we do know now. So I hope that this show propels you to do just that, to give your former self some grace, but then also the courage to, you know, set some goals and hold your future self accountable to doing better. All right. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Faith. Faith, welcome so much. Welcome so much. Is that a phrase? Hmm, you know, I don't know. It's a mix. It's a mix. It's a mix. Welcome so much to the Plucking Up podcast. We're so excited to have you. I'm so excited to be here. So for our listeners who are not familiar with you and your work, will you give us just kind of like the 15 second elevator pitch of who you are and what you do today? Sure. I am a social worker and a writer and an anti-racism educator. So I center a lot of my work around anti-racism education, but also I just love talking about life, being a Black woman in her 30s, talking, you know, about career and, you know, love and life and just, you know, what does that look like for me, right? So being a Black career woman is a big part of, you know, who I am. And so I love to talk about it. And then I podcast over at Melanated Faith with my friend Catherine. And that's a little bit about me. I love it. Okay. So, and we originally met through 
Be the Bridge. How mm-hmm. long did you work for Be the Bridge? I worked for Be the Bridge for a year and a half, maybe I would say, on full time staff. And I volunteered before Be the Bridge was even Be the Bridge at the very beginning of all the things. Baby Be the Bridge. Um, yeah, with Baby Be the Bridge. So I did that for like five years. So wow. um, I spent a lot of time helping um, Tasha launch Be the Bridge. And that's been an adventure all those years. And so now um, I get the pleasure of getting to write and write books, which I love and I'm excited about. Okay, so let's hear a little bit about that. You have a baby book in the womb. Is that a good analogy? It has yet to be birthed. Tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, so I am writing a book, which is basically like a memoir about my life and my story, but also a a story and a call to Black women and um, just kind of talking about, you know, my journey in activism and growth there and growth in my own identity development. And so I'm kind of like walking people through that that whole journey for my own self and also trying to, you know, give voice to some things that I've even talked to my friends and my sisters about in terms of like what life is like for Black women and how we can show up and the ways that we can celebrate our life and, you know, living to our fullest potential. So I'm Mm. really excited. It's been really fun to write. It's so good. I feel like books are the, they're the biggest gift. I feel like so often people are like, well, how can I learn more? We feel we can oftentimes feel very limited by our own immediate circle of friends that are like Mm -hmm. people whose stories we know really, really intimately. And, you know, you can only have so many of those, right? Where it's like, oh, no, you're really telling me the good, the bad and the ugly. And it can feel stifling or limited when you're like, I don't have anybody in my life that represents this like perspective. So I'm stuck. What do I do? And you don't want to be someone who's just like walking up to a stranger that represents whatever marginalized, you know, like population you're talking about and being like, tell me all of your deep, dark secrets. And all the time when people (laughs) say that, I'm like, go to the library, go to the library, go to a bookstore, because here's this wild thing. Tens of thousands of people are willing to tell you the good, the bad and the ugly, like to give you a sneak peek into the window of their soul, of their perspective, of their lived experience. And they did really hard work to write Mm -hmm. it down in a book so that you could read it actually without having to talk to them in person, (laughs) without having to walk up on the street and like ask them the question yourself. And so I just consider it the biggest gift in the whole world when someone puts the heart and it's, it's scary. I mean, mm-hmm. putting yourself out there in written word is not an easy thing to do. And it is such a labor of love. So I cannot wait for your book. I will pre-order it. I will do all of the things. Um, but I'm really looking forward to reading it. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about you, Faith, is that you have your obviously your own learning journey that you've been on your whole life. But then especially in your work with anti-racism and like even with Be The Bridge, for those of you who aren't familiar, Be The Bridge is a racial reconciliation organization. You can stop me if I'm butchering this. But they really help individuals and organizations further the conversation about how to create more equitable and diverse and inclusive families, relationships, churches, organizations. We've worked with them more on like the pure organizational level. So I think it's really interesting that you have your own learning journey, but then you've seen thousands, tens Mm -hmm. of thousands of people go through their own learning journey. And you've almost been like a learning guide for folks. And so I'm really curious about learning more from you of like, what have you learned 
about learning through watching folks in their own journey of not only just like learning something academic, but a lot of times anti-racism work is like deeply personal, emotional, like you got to dig deep. There's a historical and your family of origin system and identity. And so I feel like of any of, of being a part of any sort of learning journey, this is probably one that exposes the most Oh, yeah. About like where people are at, where they're coming from, what they're struggling with, the things that are keeping them actually from learning and evolving. So I'm really excited because I bet, well, I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm curious (laughs) about what are, tell me, like, does that resonate with you having seen like 10,000 people go on a journey? And what are some of the things that you've pulled out of that? Yeah. So people do go on a journey and I think it's more jarring and a little bit mentally wrecking for people whenever they really start to dig deep into anti-racism work. And I personally believe, like I've come to the belief that, you know, it's nice to do head knowledge and history and facts. And I think that there's a place for it. And it is very important along a person's journey so they can actually have tangible ways to say, see, these are some differences or, you know, these are disparities and to actually have, you know, um, conversations. But one of the things that I've realized is that in order for people to stay in the conversation, in order for them to stay motivated to want to care, you really have to work with people on uncovering some of the deep, deep stuff that's under the surface, the stuff that can cause conflict within a person's soul. So for example, like I've worked with people who, when we're supposed to be talking about like, you know, our past or, you know, ways that we've had, you know, racist experiences or things like that. Some of the white folks will just like hold back and not want to talk about like, well, These are some, you know, racist things that I was taught by my parents or, you know, these are some things that I heard said. And there's so much shame around Mm. just admitting that, that it can be so hard to break into the conversation because then it'll feel like for the people of color, you know, oh, we're just spilling all of our tough moments. And then the white folks are just kind of quiet. And it's like, you know, one thing I told you know, the group and we're in a group that's, you know, we were in a be the rich group at the time and we were specifically talking about race. So context matters here. But because we were in a group that was specifically designed to have these conversations, you know, I really made it a point to tell people like, hey, you actually need to equally open up just as much as the people of color are, because otherwise you have people bearing their soul and you're not bearing yours. And whether that's ugly, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, like you still need to do it. And so, um, because that's part of where the freedom is, is being able Mm -hmm. to release that shame, Mm -hmm. but people underestimate how caring about race, caring about things that are going on, racism, all this stuff, people truly underestimate how emotionally difficult it can be to admit what you admit, to see what you see, and then choose not to unsee it. And then Mm. you realize how much it's everywhere. And that is emotional for people and honestly overwhelming. And some people are just like, forget it. I can't even do this because now I see the ways in which this, you know, is operating all around me and my family and, you know, things like that. So that's hard for people to reckon with. So what do you say to that? When someone has that moment, I remember a specific line, actually, that Tasha shared It was like something to the effect of like, once you realize that like racism is the ocean that we're swimming in, 
I think was the phrase that she used. And if that triggers in someone a sense of complete overwhelm, like if it's my family, if it's me, if it's my society, if it's the school that I went to, if it's all the teachers that I, you know, grew up trusting, then it's like too much and I'm I'm I am shutting down. Yeah. <laughs> What's the next step for those folks? Yeah, I think people have to take it in a bite-sized pieces. White folks tend to get real excited and <laughs> be like, we're going to fix it today. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> this is like hundreds and hundreds of years of oppression and, you know, deep-seated systemic racism and issues and biases towards communities of color. And one day isn't going to fix it. One week, one summer, one 2020 summer is not going to fix it. And if people haven't realized it by now or haven't seen what happened in 2020 and then the backlash of what's happened in 2021 to kind of either reverse or deter people from wanting to talk about race for making people feel like, you know, oh, we're just trying to attack you know, white people see, take, let's not even teach the kids history, um, accurate history at that. Let's just kumbaya our way on. People at that point have to ask themselves, like, can I carry on? Is this mm. important enough to me? Is this important enough to um, for my children to know true history? And what am I trying to protect them from? Right. And so I think the next step is taking a dial back. And it's not how can I save everything and solve it with one swipe, one protest, one whatever. It's how can I actively and tangibly drill down on this and make this very personal to my own life, do my part to bring about the solution within my community. And that means that if there's an incident that happens at my kid's school and racism occurs, I make sure that I let the school know and the administration knows that it's really important to me that we handle this well and that children are welcomed in our schools and they're not treated this way. And it's little things like that that matter, but it's when people get callous and defensive and just decide not to care because they don't want to feel bad that things just don't change. So you can be overwhelmed because yeah, we're humans and you know, that's fine. You're overwhelmed. But to stay there and to be paralyzed by inaction, nothing changes. And so um, that's why it's so important to dial back when you're feeling overwhelmed and say, let's start with me. What can I do? And how can I personally, like literally me personally, <laughs> be a part of the change? Um, that really is a way to help people to go from feeling like way up here in the rafters, like nothing I do will ever change anything mm -hmm. to actually something I do will change something mm -hmm. in my sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so good. I love the framework. I think it was um, Ibram X. Kendi, Kandi, am I saying his name right? Who talks Kendi. about, so he wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist. And this idea, I think a lot of people exist in this realm where there's like three choices. They're like, I can be a racist and nobody thinks they are. I can be an anti-racist or I can today just be like neutral and just not think mm -hmm. about it at all and like just hang out and be not a racist. And right. I love the idea that it's like, ooh, actually, there's only two choices. There's only yeah. two choices. And by the way, neither of them are actually your identity. I thought I think that that's a really powerful part of his philosophy is that it's like you're not a racist or an anti-racist you wake up every day and you either 
participate in systems that promote and perpetuate racism or you are actively doing your part to push against them, actually neither of those are are naming yourself as part of your identity. They actually are actions, which mm-hmm. I think is incredibly freeing to say, oh man, I did a racist thing. Like I said a thing, I didn't say a thing, I didn't think before I sent this gif, whatever it is. And I can look at that thing and go like, I did a racist thing. That is very different than saying like, at the core of my identity, I'm a racist, right? Um, It's an action. And I think anytime in the learning journey, we, I mean, I tell this to my kids, not about racism, but it's like, you made a bad decision. You're not a bad kid. Like we can separate that out and hold those two things of like, you're doing the best that you can. Also, you did something that really hurt your brother's feelings. And like, we Mm -hmm. need to acknowledge the impact that that action had on your brother. And by the way, doesn't really matter what your intentions were. It still hurt his feelings and it was still, you know, it, it still caused pain to someone else. But I, one, love that idea. And I think as learners, it can really help to separate us separate our core identities from our actions and from the product that we create in the world. And like our value is all tied up in that. But I also really love his challenge that it's like actually neutrality. Unfortunately, if you wake up and you're like, it's too much, I'm just not going to think about it today. And I'm I'm just going to put my hands up. It doesn't actually land you in the like, not a racist camp. It lands you in the like, oh, well, you're probably perpetuating and supporting systems that are actively pretty racist. So on the one hand, that's kind of a hard challenge because it feels like you don't get off days. You don't get to just wake up some days and be like, it's a neutral day. Yeah. But to me, the encouraging part of it is that we get to wake up every single day and choose and say like, today is today is a day. And I'm going to like actively decide to be more awake towards that, whatever that happens to mean for me in my life. So I'm sure that you've seen like a thousand million white people spiral into shame. And then just shut off and be like, either get super defensive and be like, "Mm, this is all a little bit much to me or just genuinely be so sad and get overwhelmed that it also leads them to just complete inaction. And neither of those are very helpful to anybody. But I'm curious as a learner yourself, you know, I think a lot of times, especially folks who identify as activists in the world, their learning journey is particularly interesting because you're still learning, but Mm -hmm. yet you're teaching other people how to learn. And Mm -hmm. so I think sometimes the stakes can feel maybe a little bit higher, like for that learner, because you're a little bit like a learner on display. You're like the learner teacher. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, are there any moments in your story that you look back on and you're like, Oh, yeah, I really plucked that up. Like I plucked that up (laughs) and experienced that kind of like shame spiral that you probably are so used to witnessing and folks who are really looking up to you and being led by you. Yeah, I think, you know, when I think about my journey, because this is something that, you know, just being a leader and talking about race has been something I started to do really openly in the public in my 20s, like early, early 20s. And, you know, dabbled in the water in college. Like I was kind of starting to come to like, you know, I'm going to really start to speak up for myself Mm. instead of just, you know, giving everybody, you know, a pass, if you will. But I feel like some of the times, the most pivotal times that I have learned is realizing that I can say something very like direct and, and pointed 
And there is a time for that. So, mm-hmm. I'm, so I'm not advocating for not because there's a time to speak very direct. But I can say something very direct and pointed. And this is this. And that is it. Like, mm. there's no gray areas here. You're either in or you're out. Mm. And there's something that I've learned along the way with people. And especially, I would say, like, a lot around this past year in terms of, like, the longevity of people wanting to be interested mm-hmm. in, in learning. And that is that we have to, and this is incredibly difficult, and I'm still learning how to do this. I'm not even super, I wouldn't even say I'm phenomenal at it, but we have to find a way in our teaching and our truth telling. And this is just how I feel. You might ask another activist and they're going to tell you something different. But for me, in my teaching and truth telling, find a way when I'm communicating something that I don't isolate people. Mm. I used to write a lot when I was younger and first starting out about race. And I would send it to my mom first to read. Okay, I love that. And she would be like, yeah, you should probably go try again. (laughs) Um, And she would just like make me like keep trying because she Mm. was like, you're so upset that I don't think people are going to hear what you're saying. Mm. And there's a place for me to be upset. But I also wanted people to listen to me. And so one thing that I've realized is that even if you're upset and and you're enraged and there's still room for those things, all of those things to be true, there's also a space where when you're trying to teach somebody, mm-hmm. you have to find and craft the art of people being able to understand what you're saying. And that part is a little bit difficult. And I feel bad in the moments and I don't necessarily get it right. Is there a specific instance that stands out to you of a time that you just like went off and then you were like, "Mm, that probably didn't accomplish what I wanted it to? It's hard to it's hard for me to say there's like one specific instance where it's like that didn't land where I wanted it to. And the only reason why I say that is because. I really feel like for me, it's more of a evaluating how I can approach things differently mm-hmm. because it still landed. Like, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, if I'm going to be honest, my angriest posts or the things that I say that I'm very direct do better than any post that I say about being encouraging or soft or embracing my womanhood as a Black woman. If I spent most of my time on the internet, making posts where I was mad, which in the moments I wrote them, I was pointedly making a point on purpose. Mm -hmm. But if I made that the thread of what I do all the time, I would have so many more followers. Yes. Like people would be flooding my page. Yes, you would. But that is not what I have chosen to do because I have seen on the other side of that, Mm. how that does not promote the longevity that I would like to see happen within people and their journey. So. In those moments where I was doing that, Mm -hmm. like very pointed and making a point when a point was necessary to be made, I did it. And I didn't walk away feeling shame necessarily, Mm -hmm. but I felt like if in order to lead people in the direction, I would love to see them flourish in. I can't stay in this vein of frustration constantly, if that makes any sense. It makes sense. So much sense. Okay. And I feel I'm not like, trying to avoid the question. It's no, just you're hard not. to no, explain. No, no. You're not at all. I think what you're explaining to us is that you're actually really intentional about 
the objective for why you communicate in the first place. Yeah. And that there is a time, first of all, your sense that it's like when you get sassy and like very, not only just like direct, but very like here or there, black or white, like all in or not. My also my experience on the internet is that the internet freaking loves that. The internet yeah. loves anger and the internet loves choose a side. And it I think it's one of the most dangerous parts of social media is that there is an immediate endorphin rush when you go out there because here's the thing what you're doing when you make that type of statement is you're getting everybody that's already on your side to be like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you're getting your whole crew rallied up and that can feel really good. And I don't actually even think it's always bad, but I think it's the intentionality. If you're like Faith, as a black woman, my point in this post is I just want other black women to be seen. And that means I just need to go out there and I need to say it like it is. I just had a moment like this. Actually, I just did an Instagram post. I had a terrible experience on a flight just a few days ago with a jackass who like wouldn't let me use his outlet to pump. And literally I'm, and I'm just a verbal processor. And it, when I'm enraged, writing helps me get it out. It is like an actual like self-care thing. And I felt so, I did feel ashamed. I'm like, I do not want to make this an ordeal. I'm already getting ready to like get my nipples out on an airplane and milk myself like a cow. Like I'm a pretty confrontational person typically, but I was like, I do not want to cause a scene because I don't want everybody on this plane looking at me when I got to go hook myself up to my cow utter machine, right? So I had to go real internal. And so I'm just sitting there and I'm just clip, 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 clipping out, clipping out my Instagram post about how mad I am. And I know in the moment, like, and then someone, of course, someone commented on it. There was a lot of love and a lot of like people that were angry on my behalf, which that's what I wanted. And of course, I had somebody comment that was just like, Chad, because I disparagingly, you know, use the like basic white boy name, whatever you know, this post reeks of like, I don't know what it was, resentment, blah, blah, blah. This isn't how you're going to change Chad's mind. And I was like, you know what? You're right. But this one wasn't for Chad. This one was for me. Like what I needed in this moment is to put my lived experience out there and have my sisters and frankly, my brothers who support me show up and go, not okay. We're with you. Like I just needed that. I needed a little virtual rallying crew around me in this like moment. But I think having the awareness of knowing what you're doing when of like, yeah, that that actually wasn't an effective form of communication to change Chad's mind at all because it was pretty shame based and really sassy and pretty hyperbolic. You're right. That's not how I changed Chad's mind. This time was for me. Now, if I'm going to go out and I'm going to communicate truly to like welcome Chad into the folds of feminism and to say, hey, here's how you can be a supportive ally and partner and coworker. There is a very different way that I need to communicate that. And I completely agree with that and think all of the science shows us that once our shame trigger, once we feel like someone is naming us, they are shaming us, like literally the part of our brain that can evolve and grow just completely shuts down. And we back into a corner. We can't learn. We can't grow. But my point being, I think what you did is just articulate like You just got to know what you're doing when. And it's like when you just need for yourself to put it out there or for other, in your instance, like other black women to just go like, oh, I see that. You are not alone. That has happened to me. Then just that's great. Just know that that's what that is. That is the thing that's going to 
just be for your people. And there's a place for that. And then there's a place for how do we really strategically and effectively communicate when we actually want to change minds, not just get like from the people that already love us and agree with us, which I think is what the internet basically is right now. It's just people getting louder and angrier and, and getting more popular within their section of the fan crew that they've carved out but the louder that gets over there, no no one from that side, you've lost it, yeah. I think. It's like you've really like, you're probably no longer the one that's going to shepherd people from that side of the arena onto your side if yeah. that's primarily how you're communicating. Yeah, I mean, being angry sells, you know, it, yeah. just, it just does. And I've talked to other activist friends about this who feel like similarly to me and it's just like, I just can't be mad all the time. Like I'm trying to like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to survive, you know, and in many ways also thrive in my life, despite racism, despite white supremacy, things like that. Like I, I still want to thrive. I still want to have a good life. And so in order to do that, I cannot live yeah. in a state of anger. Yeah. Does injustice um, upset me and make me angry. Absolutely. Do I still want to continue the work of pushing forward towards change? 100%. But I cannot live in a state of rage and think that I will have the amount of effectiveness that I desire to have. And I just think that is something that I take into consideration. My faith is important to me and how I interact and communicate with people. And when I think of the moments that I've experienced immense shame, if I've messed up or gotten in trouble, you know, for doing something or, you know, hurt someone's feelings or, you know, gotten a disagreement with, you know, my mom or something. And then I feel those moments where I feel in deep, deep shame. In order to truly get myself out of those places, I have to address deeply what I'm feeling. And I also have to realize that there's a part of me that's going to really need to forgive myself. And so for I feel like people struggling with shame when it comes to race stuff and you're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Like, I feel so overwhelmed. I've been contributing to the harm, whatever the case may be. It is so easy to stay right there in that mental spiral of, I have just completely screwed this up. And the only way to get to the next place to where you can get your head outside of that place is to admit that you have maybe made some mistakes. You did not know some things, but that you are going to forgive yourself for Mm -hmm. what you didn't know and hold yourself accountable now for what you do know. Mm -hmm. So you didn't know it then. Okay, let's keep growing and hold yourself accountable to do better because of what you know now. Mm -hmm. And the only way we'll continue this cycle is for people to also change the way they're hearing what many activists and other people in the Black community are saying. People are asking for equality, equity. And I think sometimes people are making assumptions that you know, oh, people are advocating for handouts or things like that. That's really besides the point of what people are actually asking for. It's it's fair treatment. It's, you know, actually having your leaders in your community truly care and provide the same kind of education for kids on one side of town, maybe in the inner city, than they can get at the suburbs. Like it's really providing those 
equitable solutions for communities. It's ending the school to prison pipeline for kids. And, and so I just think that people have to see the, the broader sense of what people are talking about. And the only way to do that is to be okay getting outside of yourself and your comfort. And just, just for a little bit, turning that dial and looking from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. But the shame of saying, see, they're just trying to shame me. They don't, you know, they just hate us. And they're trying to make everything like we did is all of our faults. We've all inherited a mess. Like it's bad. It's terrible. (laughs) Like this, you know, all of these systems, the way things have been, it's really not that great, but it's what we have. And so it's our job to do our part to fix it. And so how many people have come into a job or a new position and there's a bunch of stuff that is wrong that you did not do. Mm -hmm. You did not, but you had to come in and fix it. Mm -hmm. It was not your job. You did not mess all the things up, but now it's your new position and you have to go in and fix what was wrong. This is the same concept. Yes. That have done it. That's so good. That distinction. And I feel like I've just heard someone say this. I need a fact checker. I can't afford a fact checker right now. So someone when you said so listeners, you're just gonna have to do it on your own. Fact check. This idea that it it could not it might not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. I mean, I think that that's any any generational harm sits within that, right? Like you were born into an abusive household. You were born into a family that struggled with alcoholism. You were born into a family that um, was very, you know, had deep financial distress, whatever it is, that's gonna affect you. It isn't your fault. Like you weren't the one that took the drugs, that took the drink, that gambled it away, that abused it. You can say that. and you, But it doesn't really help to stay there and be like, well, it's not my fault. My family is in this mess. Because at some point we all have to say like, but this is the card I was handed. And it is my responsibility to say I'm either going to perpetuate the mess or I'm going to stop the cycle. And you don't yeah i think the question of like culpability just like it throws so many people off so the many people off that it's, it's just like, like why well, am i responsible not- for something my racist grandpa did and it's like exactly. you're not it's not your fault your grandpa's a racist but it is your responsibility to stop the legacy for your own family and in your community and to choose a different way for raising your kids that is your responsibility and if you don't it's like there's so many things in life where we're on a treadmill. It's like this is just you're you stepped into the current. Yeah. And if you don't intentionally swim out of the current or step off of the treadmill, then at some point it does start to become your fault because you're like you're actively choosing to perpetuate that. But the culpability is the thing that I feel like just gets people so woo, 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 yeah. we can go along. Yeah. We can we can we can fly off into the orbit of culpability. <laughs> And then it keeps us from ever like talking about responsibility, even outside of culpability. Exactly. Exactly. And the thing is, is that change and and loving your neighbor and wanting to see other people thrive is an amazing thing. You want to see other people thrive and do better and have success. And if you don't, and your actions don't represent that, then I think people should be more, you know, open to admitting that. Maybe I don't want to see other people thrive as much as I did mm. or thought that I did. Maybe those aren't things that I really, you know, desire because that's a way different reckoning mm. to admit, okay, I actually don't want to see people do well mm-hmm. and own it 
rather mm-hmm. than, well, I don't know. It's just, I don't, it's not really my issue. It's not my, I don't have to, to deal with it, mm-hmm. but we all have to deal with issues that we've inherited. All of us. Yeah. We deal with it every single day. I have to fix something that I did not break. I have to take care of something that I was not responsible for. And the quicker we can recognize that this isn't just some one-off when it comes to race, but that we in fact deal with problems we did not intend to have to deal with every single day, people will be able to reflect back and ask themselves, okay, why am I using the feeling of shame as an excuse to disengage from this conversation? What is making me so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and so frustrated that I am willing to close my ears off to what people are saying and just continue living life as I want to without any regard for trying to like, just lend my ear Mm -hmm. to try to understand. And so when you close yourself off, it's like you close yourself off from the growth. You close yourself off from giving people around you new opportunity, new community, new experiences. Oh my gosh. Like I love learning about other cultures and it's so much fun. And you probably will mess up and say something that like you were not supposed to say. I mean, there's things, times of like, I'm getting to know my friends that are of different ethnicities and I don't know what I'm talking about sometimes. So most of the time I'm just going to be quiet because I don't know. And I'm still learning. And so if they introduce me to their grandparents, I'm just so excited. And one of my friends took me to El Salvador one time Mm. and we just had so much fun. I stayed with her family. Um, We were sharing in food and community. And it was just so great that she took me with her to meet her people. And I was so excited because I love when I get to share my people with other friends. And so it was just so great that she did that for me. And I got to soak up that experience. But had I not gone, had I not been open, had I not listened, I would have never had the experience. And I could have thought a lot differently about the country. I could have thought a lot differently about what people say about El Salvador, I could have thought so many other things, but being in the present and having the experience helped me to frame up my perspective on my own because I went and I saw for myself and I met the people for myself. And when you are more willing to meet people in other countries for missions trips or things like that, but you're not willing to listen to people Mm -hmm. from those same Mm -hmm. countries or of the same countries. Yeah. In America, mm-hmm. to have these kind of conversations, some of the same ones you're having in different countries, mm-hmm. then you need to ask yourself, what is the difference? Why does it matter more to you to raise money to go to a place rather than just give all that money to the place? Mm-hmm. And why do you care more about what's happening in other countries in a sense than what's being a part of happening what's in your own backyard? Like Because one doesn't inherently ask you to evaluate your own complicity and the other one does. Exactly. One allows us to say like, oh, over there, bad things are happening. And I can be a part of a good thing happening without having to ask any questions about, am I involved in the bad thing? Right. And here when it's like, so when it's in, you know, I see this very directly in the work that we do because, you know, you know this, we now work, we work all over the globe. And it is, it's a lot less complicated to get, you know, a white American to go like, of course, course I want that 19-year-old Ugandan woman to go to university. And it's horrible that her country doesn't create that opportunity. 
And then it's like, mm, let's talk about the public schools in your city and the access that kids in your city have to great education. Well, then all of a sudden, it's like my tax dollars, what area of town I live in, how my children are going to be affected. And ooh, that's a lot. That is a bigger, stickier conversation. And it's not as easy and it's not as clear because it it actually takes it from like, oh, those, I see this a lot. It's like, oh, those poor African women are being harmed by those terrible African men is it, or society. Mm-hmm. And that what is interesting about that is that you don't have to, there is no light that gets shed on you, your decisions, your complicity and whatever that is. And then right. when it's in your own neighborhood, in your own city, in your own culture, then all of a sudden it's like, I think about that little Pixar lamp, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it comes out on the scene and it goes like, listeners, you can't see me, but all of a sudden the light is swinging to me and asking yes. me to ask myself some really hard questions. And that's a lot harder. It's a lot harder it's and it's a lot stickier. A lot harder. But here's the thing I've learned. Shame, if in terms of teaching, shame's not going to move the needle. Mm-hmm. Not very much. Mm-hmm. I think conviction can help, right? Conviction mm-hmm. is good. You want people to feel convicted, but shaming people only goes so far. And yeah, The way people are being shamed right now on the internet, and this is not just in regards to race, it's just in general. The way people are being shamed on the internet is wild. Yeah. And people are already incredibly fatigued. And so it's really interesting to me to think about like what the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years are going to be like online in these spaces with the amounts of arguments and vitriol and just all of the things that happen on the internet. So I have a question. Do you think we'll get so far down that road? Because I'm already starting to see it in myself. Like, do you think that we outrage and we like, you know, we've had like five years, maybe even like a decade at this point of the public shaming on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I find in myself now when someone's like, you know, getting shamed and getting filleted, I'm like, I almost, I'm like, oh, I gave away all my Fs. Like, I can't even, there's too many people that it's almost like over, it's like shame, public shaming overwhelm. And if enough people are overwhelmed by like, I can't even rally up my cares about like making sure that this person gets publicly shamed. If that happens, will there be like a tipping point in our culture where like it won't be the clickbait engine that it is now because we're just so overwhelmed with it. And we're like, everybody's getting shamed on the Internet. So like I can't even care about it anymore, which does really suck because I think that that. I think you can overcorrect in the opposite direction. Like there is a Mm -hmm. difference between accountability and shaming. Sure. But I think what you're talking about and what we're experiencing as a culture very much so a lot of it fits into the like just public, just public humiliation and shame. A lot of it fits into shame. And I think it's also subjective because I could, you know, in my mind, be like, oh, I think we're just, we're going to hold that person accountable. And and somebody else could also be like, oh, no, we're shaming that person. I mean, so I yeah. know that there's pieces of it that are subjective. It's going to be subjective to the person I would feel like or people. But, but I still think that what I feel lately is when I'm talking about shame and I think about the future, I think people will A, just either get off the internet um, <laughs> Or like, like yesterday, spend, this is going right. to date this episode, but yesterday was the day that Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp went dark yeah. and we all experienced like eight hours of what it was like to be in middle school, just with, yeah. just with your aim messenger chat only. 
Yeah, exactly. So I think people will probably not get, obviously, so much of our lives are intertwined online at this point. But I do think that people will spend less time online. I already see people doing it where they're not spending nearly as much time online as they used to and will find ways to just kind of like unplug and not, you know, participate in every single thing. Also, like, I'm very selective about what I choose to engage in and get behind. And if I post it or I feel like this is something that's important, then yeah, it's important because I did it. There's a lot of things that I just don't have time for. And so I don't because I just, I don't have time, whether literal time or emotional time and energy to engage. Because when you're posting something about race or you're saying something and you're holding somebody accountable, not only are you just posting it, but like, you know, you have to deal with like the trolls and the hate stuff. And like, you know, I'm going to be honest. Like, I feel like I have to be in the mood, you know, like I have to be in the mood to want to deal with getting hate messages. A hundred (laughs) percent. I think this is people that don't have influence on the internet. Don't understand the emotional toll that showing up and having an opinion has on your life that it is just like and so I do feel like that's what leads and I'm sure you feel this like I got this message you know the other day I ended up getting very invested and involved in some efforts to help get some folks in Afghanistan out of Afghanistan during our train wreck Mm -hmm. of a Mm -hmm. you know And had people messaging me like, why are you posting about this and not this and this and this and this and this thing that's happening to these people in this part of the world and this is happening to this. And it's like the expectation, what I just want to say is like, (laughs) I'm just doing the best that I can. And if and when like I have the, there are certain things that I know I happen to know a little bit more about or that break my heart in a really specific way. Or frankly, I might just actually have capacity on this day in a way that I didn't have three days ago because I am not sitting on my Instagram for 12 hours a day thinking about like, what things am I going to show up for? I am like, figuring out how to keep my kids alive, how to keep my business running, how to be involved in my community, how to like carve out time to go to the bathroom. Like, you know, there's a real dehumanizing thing that can happen where it just feels like people treat you like an object that's like, you're not serving my need in this way. And not at all seeing that it's like, oh my gosh, you're just like this whole person and just like a tiny bit of your life is on the internet. And like this expectation that it's like, you should give me this and this and this and this. And it's just like, I should give that to you. (laughs) I think it's like, it's helping people learn the concept that I can do what I can, but I can't do it all. And people don't always realize that, especially when you are a public figure. But I think that's something that I've just had to hold on to for myself. I can do what I can't, but yeah. I cannot do it all, which yeah. means that there's a lot of major issues and things going on. And you might not hear me address every single one of them, but I promise you, if you follow a myriad of activists, someone has yes. said something, Yes, but I cannot speak to everything. And I don't. Also, why are you asking me to speak about things that I don't know that much about? We do not need more 
internet experts, okay? Or it's just like, you want me to quickly Google some ish and then write an Instagram post about it, acting like I know what I talk about? No, we don't need more of those people on the internet. Like, Yeah, I think you should follow a bunch of people. Like, I think you should be well-rounded in who you follow and the voices that you listen to. It may not be like you're saying, you might be like, okay, well, that was that was a lot, but I'm here. I'm still here. I'm I'm Reddit, you know. Um, you know what I mean? Like, why can't why are people on the internet feeling the need to announce their departures? I've heard somebody say before, yeah. this is not an airport. You don't need to say when you're leaving. Because it's so valuable just to be a fly on the wall of other people's conversations. And if somebody says something that like doesn't resonate with you or that's too far or too extreme, like scroll on. Scroll on. Scroll on. Oh, man. Wow. Well, Faith, is there any... Um, I just enjoy conversation with you so much. I feel like we there's so many different places that we could have and have taken these conversations. <laughs> <laughs> we can really go. We can really go in a lot of different directions. Oh, um, but is there any last thought that you would like to leave our listeners with before we wrap up? I would say to people, keep learning and keep your heart open Mm. to learning and don't let shame hold you back. Yeah. Don't let that inner fear of messing up or making a mistake or saying something crazy. You're going to mess up. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to probably say something crazy. So just make peace with that. Um, But don't let that keep you from getting involved and learning and getting beyond yourself in your comfort zone. There's so much of a world awaiting you when you choose to learn more and when you choose to open up yourself to things that are beyond what you've already experienced and you will grow and become more beautiful and have an even fuller, more diverse life when you open yourself up to learn more. That is so good. That is so good. That's my main takeaway from this conversation with you is yes, so often we position the conversation about learning and growing or anti-racism in this case of like, don't do this thing because it's harmful to other people. And it's like, that is an important part of the equation. But what you're telling us is also don't do that thing because it's gonna be beautiful and life-giving and good for you in the end too. Like, don't miss out on the goodness that awaits you. You know, one of the things we say in our community is this idea of like, don't spend all of your time dodging no's, dodging the mistakes. Right. Spend your time chasing yes. Because yes mm-hmm. is so much more, inv- the, the good life of like having a community that's diverse and that's interesting and where there's curiosity and openness and learning and support. And like your example of your friend in El Salvador, like don't miss that magical experience because you're so afraid of doing something wrong or so afraid of messing up because a life of just not hearing no or not making mistakes actually isn't a very beautiful, interesting life. Right. That is what you taught me in this conversation and how I do believe that at least your life on the internet, that is the invitation that you bring us into is like not forgetting the whole picture of the goodness that you're opting into when you decide to engage in some of these harder conversations. Yeah, exactly. Good stuff. Exactly it. Well, thank you so much, Faith. You are such a treat. What's the name of your book? Can you tell us yet? Yeah, the name of my book is Remember Me Now, A Journey Back to Myself and a Love Letter to Black Women. All right. Well, you'll be hearing about it in the Plucking Up community once it's launched and lived, but you heard it here first. If you haven't already, follow Faith on Instagram. Uh, We'll, you know, link to her in the show notes and the handles and all of those things so that you can be ready and waiting when the book hits the shelves. Thank you so much, Faith. Thanks.
This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can also visit lizbohannon.co or visit us on Instagram. I'm over it at lizbohannon. They're at Human Group Media. All right, that's all, y'all. We'll catch you again in the next episode. And until then, stay plucky. Stay plucky.